coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. It's interesting, so when I have to have tough conversations with clients or, or speak, speak the truth uh, when it's uncomfortable for them to hear, oftentimes in that moment, it is not a, um, it's not a fun conversation for either me or the client. After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting with numerous companies, I realized that when business leaders shared stories of their success, hardships, and mistakes, it always had an impact in the classroom. So I thought, why not share these real-life business cases for education and inspiration? I'm Kazmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. On today's episode, we speak with Justin Eggins. Justin is a startup lawyer at Spangler & Eggins and works with small to medium-sized businesses as their outside counsel. Justin helps with everything from formation to key contracts to early stage funding. In addition to being a lawyer, Justin also has an MBA with a focus on marketing and entrepreneurship, which he uses to better understand the business implications of legal value choices. So thanks for being here today, Justin. Thanks for having me. My question is, when do you become an attorney and then a business owner attorney? You know, you go to law school and they allegedly train you how to be a lawyer, um, but you don't become a lawyer until really you've been in practice for a few years, I would argue. You know, I go to school, I finish up, I get a master's in business in addition to the law degree. and. Uh, and then you, you open a business and you become a business owner before you become a lawyer, actually, I would argue. It's figuring out you know, how, to, how to budget, how to, how to hire, uh, how to manage. Um, those, are, uh, those are skills that you're, you're starting to learn or maybe be bad at initially. Um, and then you, know, you learn the, the practice of law along the way. So did you work for a firm before you started your own practice? I did not. So prior to starting my own practice, I had worked for a free clinic when I was in school. Uh, for my last two years there. And so I had, I had clients, I had brewery clients and distillery clients and restaurants. Um, and so I'd gotten to do all of the things that you, um, you do as a practice of law, but in small chunks. So you start your law practice right out of law school. Yep. How much law are you practicing your first year? Well, that's a more complicated question for me than for most people, but um, I would say it was probably maybe 10 hours a week. I had another business I launched at the same time, and so that was a little bit more complicated. You decided to launch two businesses right away, straight out of law school, and are they complementary in nature? One could see complementary pieces, although I would argue that they, they had little to do with one another. Um, the first was actually a consulting business that I had launched while I was in school. I had launched it my my third out of four years while I was in school. Um, and I launched kind of a consulting business just myself, but I really grew it and scaled it after, after uh, leaving school, and, uh, but at the same time as launching my law practice. Okay, and that, can you share what that practice is? Sure, so uh, it's, a, it's an expert witness business um, where we support expert witnesses primarily in toxic tort litigation. So think asbestos litigation um, or disaster relief cases where people get sick after helping with cleanup. Um, and our job is to help process that information. So primarily think, um, let's say there's a court case and there's thousands of pages of depositions and other sorts of legal documents. Um, we help experts review that more efficiently um, to be able to maximize their time. So you have a consulting service, you have a law firm, but one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is you're, you're known as the attorney for entrepreneurs. 
So you start off as one, were you your first client? <laughs> That's a fair statement. <laughs> what do you see a lot of early entrepreneurs, uh, what mistakes do they make sure. in regards to starting their company? So the first thing is they, there's, I'd say there's two primary ones. The first is they don't make sure that the intellectual property that they're creating, especially if it's technology or tech enabled business, they're not making sure that that technology belongs to the company. So intellectual property assignment. That's number one for any tech company that's gonna scale. If somebody's gonna invest in your company, that's the most important asset. So making sure that that's done properly is, is paramount. Real quick, we're talking about patents. We're talking about trademarks. Yep. There's a cost that's, ass that's sure. assumed with it. What is the pushback you get on a lot of inventors? And we talk about the inventor mindset, which they're, they're, they have a beautiful mind and sometimes hard to communicate with. How do you, <laughs> uh, how do you communicate that, the value to them? There are judgment calls to be made on when you spend money to, let's say, get a patent, right? There's not really a judgment call as to whether you've signed a three-page document stating that the technology you're building belongs to the company that you're trying to raise money through. So there's a difference in those two things, and there's always gonna be judgment calls in any sort of business scenario, and the timing of spending that legal uh, to get a patent is something that's an important question. Um, so I, I, I sort of make sure that we've got the foundation built before we're even thinking about that. Definitely push back though in terms of timing because that it's expensive. Building that foundation early on, what are the misconceptions a lot of early business owners have in regards to company structure? You hear, I can't lose control. I need X, Y, and Z for this to happen. What are they, what do they not know when they come to you right off the bat? I guess I would answer this question by tying back to your previous one about what are some big mistakes. They don't know that they need to figure out who's gonna own what percentage of the company at the beginning. And they need to make sure that they've had that very, very difficult conversation um, and then laid out expectations accordingly. People tend to just you know, chop up the pie equally um, even when the experience or capital or um, sort of will to make the business go is not equal among the, the individuals that are starting the business together. Um, and so I view one of my primary jobs is to make sure they understand that they need to have that conversation right. and then facilitate as necessary. When they want you to facilitate, I'm assuming they want to defer to you and say, Justin, how much should John own? How much should Carol own? And how do you, how do you play the facilitator role as instead of the arbitrator. <laughs> I can be a little harsh at times, um, but I say if you're not ready to have that conversation, you're not ready to launch a business. Based on building that foundation and the services that you provide for the entrepreneurs on a legal aspect, what are you shocked that we're not teaching business owners and company managers in business school? I'm shocked that project-based learning is not more of what we're doing. Almost everything that you do when you're operating in a business is some form of project-based work. And I feel like we learn a lot of theory and limited application. And I'd say that the theory is not the hard part, uh, it's the application. And 
I think the ability to make mistakes in a more controlled environment like a university setting or a classroom setting would be valuable and so trying to make it feel more like an apprenticeship while you're there as opposed to um, a teacher teaching you um, would be something that would be valuable for, for students, more valuable for students than the current model. So in business school today, there's always a business law class. Sure. They teach basic foundation, what an S corp is, what a C corp is, but they leave it right there. And when companies start, especially those who are educated with a business degree, they really have very little foundation in business law. How important is the structure of the company, whether you're an LLC, C corp or S corp? I would argue that the structure, that the choice of structure, so the form, um, is less important for local businesses, but very important for startups who have high growth aspirations. The substance is, is of course very important across both of those examples, but it doesn't so much matter if you're a corporation or an LLC, if you're a local business, um, it's gonna be passed for taxation either way in most cases. Um, it's more about what sorts of formalities, what titles are you using. But you can run the company exactly the same whether you're a, an S corporation or, or an LLC, right? If you're a local business like a law firm or a restaurant. On the other hand, if you're going to be a high growth startup, um, meaning that you're gonna take on multiple rounds of traditional startup capital, um, at some point along the way, one of those large investors is going to uh, insist or uh, strongly suggest that you become a Delaware C Corporation. And it's easier to do that and set it up that way from the beginning than it is to convert later. And so I tell people, if you know that it's a, it's a go big or go home scenario where um, the only way this works is through multiple rounds of traditional startup capital, then you might as well set it up the right way to start. On the flip side of what entrepreneurs should know when they need to engage attorneys with, there's also the the opposite of those that go to an attorney and say, I want everything, I want shareholder agreements, uh, I want um, buy-sell agreements, all of these different types of documents. Where do you see a lot of business owners wasting money when it comes to legal setup and legal advice? I would say that the, and wasting's the wrong, I wouldn't use the word wasting, but I would say I try to do my best to impart to clients that um, you can let the success of your business pay for incremental and additional legal needs. The two places where I see people get maybe a little bit more aggressive than um, I think the situation merits would be, they, they want to get a portfolio of trademarks to protect their business name and logo design earlier than um, I think the market necessitates. And then second is people tend to think that their ideas are are super important from the perspective of needing to make sure that they stay confidential. And I tell people that uh, NDAs are typically worth um, <laughs> inappropriate words. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I tend to push back on, on people not thinking that they should share their ideas. Um, and so non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements are something where I think waste would be an appropriate word. People waste money on those. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I'm sure you've signed your share of NDA agreements. I've certainly signed mine, but there's this sense that my attorney charged me a couple thousand dollars to have an NDA agreement, so I won't share any of my business concepts with that. 
uh, I don't want to waste my money. Yep. On top of NDA agreements, I mean, it, it gets hard. What is enforceable? What what document actually holds its worth? You know, with NDAs, really the only thing that you're going to be protecting is if you share an idea with somebody, you can prove it was yours, and then they go and they basically use your idea and build that product. I mean, the thing is, you're not going to find out till years later, right? Businesses and products, they're hard to build. Like, the value is in the execution, not in having had a eureka moment sitting in your bathtub. Like, that's not, that's not what's, what matters. That's not what makes the world a better place with innovation and entrepreneurship. I, you know, I, I come to you, I'm going to start up my new company, and let's just say I'm starting up a new tech company. We have our buy-sell agreements. There comes a point where the company changes for the next stage of growth that all of these agreements need to be redone or reevaluated. What are some of the triggers that business owners should see to where they need to say, this needs to be revised or updated? If you're taking on meaningful investment, that's a threshold that almost always necessitates updating documents um, because it's not just you that thinks your company's worth something. Now somebody else is literally writing a check to you um, that is validating your idea or your business in the market. So that's a, that's a natural milestone or threshold where that happens. Sometimes a company doesn't need to take on investment in order to grow. And so one of the things I talk to my clients about is um, what is a threshold from a, a revenue or profit uh, perspective that internally means you've you've hit a goal that means that you have hit a next level and if that's the case then it's worth investing in um, maybe taking a, a, another look at those internal agreements among the among the shareholders um, I'd say the third and kind of final sort of typical one would be if you've grown from a headcount perspective um, where you know that you you need to start thinking about or you'd like to start thinking about uh, incentivizing your employees with equity, that's a game changer. And that means that your internal documentation needs to be updated to reflect that. And if you're going to be giving your employees stock or, or equity in an LLC, then you're usually in that instance also giving them a vote. How about an exit? When, you're, when you start a new company, and tech companies are known for this, we're going to scale this company up so we can be bought out by a VC firm or private equity. What type of legal work can be done on the front end at the inception of the company that can prepare for that exit? First and foremost, it's the IP assignment that we talked about earlier in the conversation. So especially a technology company, almost entirely the value in it is going to be the, the intellectual property and the people. And so one, it's when you are, anybody who's creating intellectual property for that technology for the company, making sure that it's properly assigned. And sometimes that's, uh, you know, a technology person or developer in, inside your company if you've got technical people there. Sometimes that's a third-party developer firm and making sure that the contracts that you've got when you're starting to work with outside folks also have that effective IP assignment. So let's talk about your practice and, and you individually. So the, the advice you give, you, you, you roll up your sleeves, you, you have these tough conversations, and sometimes you have to say the truths that nobody wants to say out loud. Yeah. But at the end of the day, give me one or two examples of things that your customers accomplish or even say out loud that make this all worthwhile. When I have to have tough conversations with clients or, or speak speak the truth, 
uh, when it's uncomfortable for them to hear. Oftentimes in that moment, it is not a, um, it's not a fun conversation for either me or the client. But I've had a couple of instances where I've facilitated those hard conversations and um, I can think of two in particular. One in which it led to actually the partners um, parting ways because they realized that there wasn't alignment in terms of the vision um, and had both people thank me for that later. And then in other instances, helping getting people get on the same page and then they, they were able to move forward and really understand what the expectations were for both, which allows the company to reach the heights that are possible. You, you see a lot of businesses come in and make mistakes and things they, you, you educate them on the things they don't know about starting their own business. Yep. What are some of the mistakes you've made along the way? You know, hiring is so hard. Hiring and managing is so hard. And I think that um, as we've gotten to be more mature as a business, I think we've gotten better at understanding um, ourselves, so our, our internal. Uh, so like I know my strengths and weaknesses. And like one of the things that I look for in, in sort of support or admin is somebody who is willing to hold me accountable. Um, and just because I'm the boss doesn't mean that I'm perfect in it. And in fact, now when we interview people, I say, you know, it's not a strength of mine to make sure I, I'm more of a, a higher level vision person. I'm not necessarily a detail person when it comes to like our internal operations. I need you to help me with that. And in the past, I think we've hired people for specific proficiencies without regard to sort of the, the cultural fit or personality fit. Hiring is something that we've gotten better at over time. And it's not really not to say that the people that we hired weren't good workers in their individual capacities, but they weren't the right fit. Let's talk about the, the big hire. It, let's say you bring another attorney in. There's, uh, there's an abundance of attorneys in the industry and available. What aspects or training would you like to see them have that they would fit your attorneys for entrepreneurs model? One, I would need to know recommendations from clients that they've worked with. Like I wanna know how does it feel to engage with this person for, for three months, right? For six months. And frankly, I need somebody who knows how to do their job now. <laughs> but define do their job now, because even the recommendations would say, Jenny shows up, she, she's a thorough researcher. Sure. What kind of, do you want them to just have legal experience or do you want them to have that business, real world business experience? I care more about the, the legal experience and in particular as it pertains to working with startups and entrepreneurs. The difference between what I do and what your average corporate lawyer does is that your average corporate lawyer can do a great job helping somebody start a restaurant uh, or a dry cleaners or a law practice or a doctor's office. And those aren't necessarily easy things, but they're, they're more run of the mill. If I was looking for another attorney, I would want somebody who has experience actually working with high growth startups, people that have helped individuals raise money uh, in a tech content, in a tech or, or high growth startup context. Um, there's just a different set of uh, complications that get layered on when somebody is, um, when a lawyer is representing a company that's looking at high growth. Bringing them in that they have this, this concept of uh, the legal realm on top of the business world. A lot of, the, a lot of what our, our talk about today has been the, the paper agreements, buy, sell, um, partnership agreements, corporation structures. The students I have, I try to talk that while it's important to have the, the foundation, the exercise is just as important as the document itself. Really, it's part of the business plan of setting expectations. Yep. 
What expectations are often overlooked when going down, you know, setting up your legal documents? As I'm sure you see when you talk with students, um, a lot of times when people want to start a company, they may have an existing work obligation. They may be an employee somewhere else. They may be have their own company, and, but they're thinking about starting something new. If it's a one-man or one-woman show, then you know they sort of get to be internally in charge of those things. But if there's multiple people, I often think that there's not people. Co-founders don't set uh, clear expectations around what the commitment moving forward is going to be over time, and that comes from a time perspective, but also like a project outcomes perspective. Almost always, if people are not full-time on a startup together, their resentment comes in at some point in time. A lot of times that's due to, you know, a lack of, of expectations being set in advance. So if you and I launched a startup together, I might, I, I would know right now, I can't commit more than let's say 10 hours a week. If you know that going in and then I give the 10 hours a week, there's not a misalignment. But if we just talk about how excited we are to start this new company, but don't set expectations about commitment, if you're working 50 hours a week and I'm working 10, and you sort of knew that I had other stuff going on, but we didn't explicitly say that, people are gonna get mad. In the case of managing those expectations, how do you outline the liability that an owner might have in case of failure? Another one of the hard conversations that have to be had, that just needs to be very explicitly laid out in advance. And it is rarely the case that if two people come to me to, that they want to start a business that it's going to be equal cash contributions or uh, that both parties are going to uh, you know, run up their credit card in equal amounts or rarely are the expectations properly set there. I would say, unfortunately, rarely am I brought into the, those conversations outside of the context of what am I putting in at the moment of formation. And so it gets messy. Um, and you know, my job is to try to help prime that pump um, from the perspective of making sure that they have the conversation when they're in that, in that space in the moment. But you know, to be perfectly honest, most, most people don't come back to me when it's time for that next cash infusion. It can be quite difficult and, you know, if when things go south, and they often do for, for companies, um, then it, 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 unfortunately it's an after-the-fact discussion that, that rarely goes well. As both a practicing attorney and the owner-operator of a consulting business, you're having to split your time between the two. How do you manage that balance? So it's a lot easier today because the consulting business is, uh, I'm stepped into more of a managerial role. Um, so I'm only spending maybe five hours a week on that at this point in time. Earlier in, uh, in the journey for me, um, there were a lot of 100-hour weeks. And so there was all work and no play. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I try to impart on clients is the, making sure they have a clear expectation that, you know, there's no reward without really, really hard work. Um, I've certainly experienced that myself and, you know, to the point where when you've got eight employees, you know, you have to pay them even if you haven't been paid. Um, and I've, I've had my water shut off, I've had my gas shut off. Thankfully not in about eight years. That's part of the journey sometimes and you have to be willing to, to work hard and, and to take those risks. And, and ultimately, you know, often it will pay off as long as you're willing to, to stay in the fight for long enough. Um, and you've got some customer validation, but 
um, you know, it's definitely a, a journey. Do you have any challenges with when you're playing the owner role versus the manager role? Yes, I'm not a good manager. Is that why you do it five, five hours a week? <laughs> um, well, that's more, so I'm not good at managing employees, I'm good at managing clients. Okay. So I, client management's what I do on the consulting side. Okay. Um, I, I hope I'm good at that, I think that I'm good at that. Um, the, the employee side of things is where I um, have lots of opportunities for improvement. But as an owner, you realize your best investment for management is not yourself. Oh yeah. So no I question. Mean, that objectivity is almost lawyerish. So what would you say the best advice you had received to when starting your firm up has been? This is gonna sound just like super cliche, but it's just like if you outwork the other side, you're almost always going to, to come out ahead. Um, and just like in any other profession, you know, people are better prepared or less prepared. Um, and frankly, hard work is, is what makes the difference. I've felt that way for a long time. As I've gotten older, it's also about working smarter. Um, as you get more experience, you have the ability to kind of understand what buttons to push. But, um, you know, honestly, hard work is, is the unsexiest answer to that question, but it's also the truest from my experience. What do you wish you had known ahead of time? What lesson did you learn the hard way? I've gotten a lot better at protecting my, my time um, and the time that I have for family. In particular in my line of work, there are very few emergencies. And I, when, historically when clients made requests, I would sort of drop everything and, and make sure that I got it done as, as quickly as humanly possible. Um, whether that got in the way of family vacations or um, or sleep <laughs> uh, or things of that nature. And what I've come to understand is that if I clearly communicate, you know, availability uh, and timelines that, you know, rarely is something so urgent that it requires, um, you know, giving up on the other parts of life. And I think I, I did not have the, um, the experience to understand that balance earlier in my career. And um, it's always gonna be a struggle. I mean, I, I'm better on it some days than others. So learning how that perfect balance between family life and still making clients happy. That's right. And, and it's really just, you know, understanding where the equilibrium is and, and then having a better sort of sense of when it's maybe a little bit out of balance and understanding you need to maybe go back a little bit in the other direction. Um, so maybe a sensitivity to, to understanding the balance rather than, it's never in perfect balance, of course. Anything else we need to know about legal and business ownership? Um, if I was gonna leave, leave people with one thing, I would say um, if there's more than one of you that's starting the business, you, just, you need to make sure it gets documented properly at the start. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cass. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Education or visit influencingentrepreneurs.com to catch up on previous episodes with Casimir Ward.